from PRX. I'm Kurt Anderson, and this is the Studio 360 Podcast. The pop music industry really got going in the early 1900s in New York City in a few blocks known as Tin Pan Alley. Irving Berlin and George and Ira Gershwin and dozens of other composers and lyricists turned out tunes that became the great American songbook. Come on and hear, like come on and hear, like Alexander's ragtime band. Tin Pan Alley was originally on West 28th Street in Manhattan, but as rents increased, it crept uptown. And by the late 1950s, the New York pop music epicenter was 1619 Broadway, this 11-story Art Deco tower, the Brill Building. It's the latest in our series on New York icons. Studio 360's Tommy Bazarian has the story. The famous Brill Building, Broadway and 49th Street. Headquarters for songwriters, pluggers, singers, band leaders, and music publishers. All hopefully buying and selling next season's hit tunes. The Brill Building was built in 1931, the same year as the Empire State Building. In the midst of the Depression, the building's owners leased cheap offices to whoever they could find which happened to be music publishers, agents, and musicians. 78 music publishers list offices here, some owners of vast music catalogs, many just a desk in someone else's waiting room. By the 50s, the Brill Building was packed with music industry professionals, many of them veterans of Tin Pan Alley. There were literally in the Brill Building dozens of publishers. Mary Rolfing is a professor of communications at Boise State University. There were musicians hanging around, and there were A&R people. You had people who represented record companies. You had booking agents. Ken Emerson is the author of Always Magic in the Air, the bump and brilliance of the Brill Building era. You had small, cheesy record studios where you could make a demo, which you could then shop. Almost every facet of the hit-making process was located at the Brill Building, and they all worked together, like an assembly line a factory for churning out songs. These unknown writers oftentimes would come through the doors at the Brill Building, take the elevator to the top, and start hitting the offices of publishers. Would you like to hear my song? Can I sell this song to you? People would start on the 10th floor of the Brill Building and go down floor by floor, and they would sell the same song 10 times. That publisher might then take it to managers of artists who should record this song. You could get your publisher, you could get your record company, you could get the cheap recording to sell. And somebody was there to distribute it, and sometimes that could happen in a matter of days. The Brill Building was all music people. That's the late Ellie Greenwich. She's speaking with the record executive Joe Smith in 1986. Greenwich worked with her husband, the lyricist Jeff Barry, in the Brill Building from about 1962 to 1964. There was such an excitement going on all the time that you walked in, I mean, you were riding in the elevators, you were riding at Jack Dempsey's next door. It didn't matter. The atmosphere was just so conducive to writing songs. The energy was incredible. They say the Broadway. 
Barry Mann was part of another marriage songwriting team with his wife, the lyricist Cynthia Weil. He's also speaking with Joe Smith in 1986. We could write the song, cut a demo the next day, get it over to the, to the, to the A&R man or the artist, and the, the damn thing could be out three weeks later. I mean, shit, I remember I must have written about 50 songs that year, the first year, or maybe 40 songs, just because we loved writing. The Brill Building was already packed with industry people by the late 50s. So as more and more aspiring publishers moved in, a few satellite buildings popped up in the surrounding neighborhood. The most notable of these by far was located a block and a half north at 1650 Broadway. Historian Ken Emerson. 1650 Broadway was a more nondescript, almost anonymous building, and consequently, the rents were a lot cheaper, and it was sort of the younger, hipper building. People talk about the Brill Building as a genre as much as a single place, and the tenants of 1650 Broadway were a huge part of that. The building was home to a publishing company called Alden Music. It was founded in 1958 by industry veteran Al Nevins and a young publisher named Don Kirshner. Al Nevins was a very experienced musician. Don was just an aspiring entrepreneur who had a real feel for what could sell. In 1958, Kirshner saw an opening in the music industry. A lot of the titans of 1950s rock and roll were really silenced. Elvis Presley no longer has that rock and roll beat. The tempo is hut, two, three, four for Private Presley. Elvis Presley was in the Army. Shirley Lewis was banned from the airwaves for marrying his 13-year-old cousin before he was formally divorced from his previous wife. The initial blast of rock and roll had passed, and Don understood, I think, how to slightly tame rock and roll, how to domesticate it to make it safe for this suddenly massive record audience of baby boom teenagers. Kirshner was aggressive in going out and looking for writers, and, and he wanted young writers, people who could speak to a younger audience. Alden Music was an inspiration for Barry Gordy, when, a few years after this, he created his own wildly successful hit factory, Motown. Instead of waiting for songwriters to knock on their door, these companies did as much as they could in-house, with a stable of talented songwriters on staff. The first writers to be signed to Alden Music were a 19-year-old Neil Sedaka and his writing partner, Howard Greenfield. Stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. They wrote Alden Music's first single, Stupid Cupid, for the singer Connie Francis. It did well, hitting number 14 on the Billboard charts in 1958. Neil Sedaka introduced Kirshner to another songwriter from a rival Brooklyn high school whom he had briefly dated, Carol King. She was only 17, but she'd already been knocking on doors at the Brill Building for a few years. Carol King started out as a 14, 15-year-old just going from Brooklyn into the city and harassing song publishers. <laughs> and uh, right away met people like Amit Erdogan at Atlantic Records who saw this talent in her. Kirshner was blown away by Carol King. He signed her and her songwriting partner, Jerry Goffin, to Alden Music in 1960. It was good timing. Goffin and King had just gotten married and were expecting a child. Soon after, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde joined the team. They'd both been bouncing around the Brill Building scene, but found a home with Don Kirshner and Alden Music. Donnie was like the father-mother figure to all, us all. And Donnie was only basically two years older than me. 
And all we want to do is please Donnie. If Donnie loved our songs, that made our day. It made our life. Kirshner was a master at motivating his staff of young writers. I mean, an artist would come up and Kirshner would call us up and say, hey, kid, the Everly Brothers are up. You know, we'd call Carol and Jerry and they'll tell us. And we'd run to write for the Everly Brothers. Literally, they kind of run back to their cubicles and try to knock it out quickly and get back to Donnie Kirshner as fast as they could. If you talk to anyone about the Brill Building era, you'll hear about the cubicles. At Alden Music, the songwriting teams often worked in one giant office space, each in their own cubicle, containing a piano, a chair, and an ashtray. They could hear each other. I mean, all of a sudden you'd hear Carol King next door playing the piano or Ellie Greenwich down the hall. You were continually hearing each other's pianos and music. So everybody knew what everybody else was doing, and everybody borrowed from what the others were doing. Yeah, you'd hear him coming out, but yeah, you know, you didn't listen, or you would listen. Hey, that's that better than mine? The competition at Alden Music was intense, especially between the married songwriting teams. We're basically like sibling rivalry. We loved it. We had this love-hate relationship with, with Carol and Jerry, and, and anybody there. We would be waiting outside for Carol and Jerry, and Barry and Cynthia to come out of the studio as we were going in. And there was this, like, of course, competition, like, oh, we're going for the same record with the same group. But outside of the, the office, there was no competition. We didn't think about Lieber and Stoller or Otis Blackwell, you know. We just thought the competition was in the office. And if we could get the record over somebody else in the office, that satisfied us. In the fall of 1960, Kirshner asked his writers for a song for the Shirelles. Goffin and King won the job. Will You Love Me Tomorrow went straight to number one and was the first number one single by a girl group. When it sold a million copies, King and Goffin quit their day jobs to write full-time. With that, Alden Music was off to the races. Take good care of my baby. From 1961 to 1963, they had hit after hit break the top 100. The Alden writers were all hitting their strides. In 1961, Howard Greenfield was one of the oldest among them at age 25. Carol King was 19. But youth wasn't all that they had in common. I went to Madison High School. It's in Brooklyn, Flatbush. Carol King went to Madison High School. Our rival high school was uh, Lincoln High School. Neil Sedak went to Lincoln High School. Hank Medress of the Tokens went to Lincoln High School. Uh, Neil Diamond went there. And then I think he switched over to Erasmus, which Barbara Streisand went, over, went there too. For some reason, that, air, that area in itself, someone should do a book on that. Just about the music industry and all the talent that came from that area. And I don't know why. I think maybe it's, I mean, we're, what are we, third generation Jews or something? Ken Emerson thinks maybe. Jewish kids were taught to play the piano and took music lessons at higher rates. By nature of their heritage and their upbringing, they were more knowledgeable about 
mainstream classical music than uh, many other white Americans. That classical background can be heard all over the Brill Building's take on rock and roll, like in the simple fact that the writers wrote on piano instead of guitar, or in the strings that Brill writers began to incorporate into their arrangements. As kids in the 50s, they were also shaped by some major news stories happening close to home. If you were of that age, you were deeply affected by two important events that touched Brooklyn. This is truly an historic day here in Jersey City. A 27-year-old Negro named Jackie Robinson is playing his first game for the Dodger Farm Club. First of all was the integration of baseball by Jackie Robinson, playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Here's the pitch. Swing That was an important landmark in racial consciousness in America, and they were at the epicenter of that. Secondly was the execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Julius Rosenberg and Morton Sobel, convicted of revealing atomic secrets to the Russians, enter the federal building in New York to hear their doom. The Rosenbergs were executed in 1953 for spying on behalf of the Soviet Union. Their defenders thought that they were victims of anti-Semitism and Cold War hysteria. Those events expanded their, their racial consciousness and awareness, and also their political awareness and consciousness. They were also picking up on musical and cultural cues from the city around them. This was the height, the absolute peak, of Puerto Rican migration to the uh, United States. Emerson says that these young Jewish New Yorkers would have been hearing Latin music everywhere. The second album that the great Tito Puente made was Tito Puente live at Grossinger's, the famous Jewish resort in the Catskills. Their parents danced to this. All the clubs and the beach clubs were full of this. It was uh, ubiquitous. Latin jazz was everywhere in New York. Jason King is a professor at the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at NYU. A lot of the Brill Building writers and producers brought those rhythms into the music that they made. And it has to do with the fact that New York was this fusion epicenter. It was a place where all of these cultures were coming together. The rhythms and sounds of Latin music are all over Brill Building songs. Blame it on the Nova, with its magic spell. Sometimes overtly, like with the Man and Wild song, Blame It on the Bossa Nova, written for Edie Gourmet. But other times, more subtly, the Brazilian Bayon beat is a hallmark of Brill Building arrangements. And it can be heard on countless recordings. There is a rose in Spanish hollow. The most famous Latin dance hall, the Palladium Ballroom, was just a few blocks away from the Brill Building at 53rd and Broadway. Every night, artists like Tito Puente and Machito would draw huge audiences of all sorts. It's almost as if Latin music could unite white and black audiences in an appreciation of a music which itself is a melding of white and black music. In the spring of 1962, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil landed a big hit of their own. Cynthia Weil got the idea for the song while walking around Midtown. The story goes that she was walking through the garment district and 
she took a look at this, you know, good-looking African-American man pushing this hand cart full of clothing. And it was a hot day, and, you know, I was working hard. She started thinking to herself, this guy is like, he comes down here, you know, comes downtown, and he's like nothing. See, when he goes uptown, he must feel like something, you know. It starts off with this flamenco guitar, and it's kind of menacing. He gets up each morning and he goes downtown Where everyone's his boys and he's lost in an angry land But then it sort of opens up to major chords when he comes home and life is entirely different. But then he comes uptown each evening to my tenement Uptown where folks don't have to pay much rent And when he's there with me Uptown was performed by The Crystals and produced by Phil Spector. This pop song about class issues hit number 13 on the Billboard charts. I think it's a powerful tune, especially in 1962, because it really addressed these two worlds that had to be navigated by African Americans, Latinos, women even. You could certainly argue that the way that it romanticizes uptown life, it's not deep, it's not rocket science. And yet, by flipping uptown and downtown and the value ascribed to those particular locations in urban life, I think that's actually kind of interesting. This is a story about New Yorker vanity. Like a lot of Brill Building music, Uptown blended different styles and perspectives, and it was able to unite listeners from different races and backgrounds. Jason King says that earlier in the 20th century, you wouldn't have seen that. People in the United States were segregated legally, but also music was segregated. Black music was considered to be raced music. It was music that was made by black people for black people. That was the way that black music was conceived in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, and even into the 1950s and beyond. The Brill Building represents this moment where whites and blacks are listening to very much the same music for a very short amount of time. It doesn't last that long, but it's a, it's a kind of golden moment in the early 1960s of a, a biracial pop culture. It had not happened before. It, it just hadn't. You know, you can say, well, there's a couple people here and there, but not in the way it happened in, in that period of time. Like the audience, the production process at the Brill Building involved both white and black musicians, but it still had issues. There is this tension there between the kind of ingenious fusion music that the Brill Building produced and then also the kind of asymmetrical power relationships that you see between white and black and men and women. There were some black songwriters in the Brill Building scene, like Rosemarie McCoy, a songwriter whose career began a little earlier in the 1950s. To run my business. <laughs> Look who's got business. Oh, I'll have to do what I hate to do. Go ahead and do it. Ain't nobody scared of you. But for the most part, the writers and producers behind these hits were white, and the artists were black. There was a real division of labor at the Brill Building, and 
artists often didn't get paid in the same way um, that those songwriters and producers did, partly because of the nature of how the music industry works, that songwriters and producers often get paid more than artists, but also because there was a racial component to that, too. Central to those complicated brill-building dynamics was Phil Spector. Spector is, of course, the musical genius credited with creating the Wall of Sound production style, but also monstrous in his personal life and currently in prison for second-degree murder. There was something polarizing about him even back in those brill-building days. I think Phil Spector's production of so many black girl groups like the Crystals, the Ronettes, and others really does represent that kind of uncomfortable moment where you have a, a white producer defining the sound and style and sentiment of black women in the 1960s, where those women don't have a voice for themselves, except through their interpretation of lyrics written by men or white people, whether they're men or women. The most controversial song to come out of the Brill Building era might be the Crystal's He Hit Me and It Felt Like a Kiss. Carol King and Jerry Goffin wrote the song after their babysitter, the singer Eva Boyd, known as Little Eva, told them about an abusive boyfriend. They intended the song to convey outrage, but Spector's arrangement made the abuse seem almost romantic. But those black performers didn't necessarily think the Brill Building's dynamics were inequitable. In the 1990s, Mary Rolfing had the chance to interview Eva Boyd about her experiences in the Brill Building system. She said, I wasn't feeling exploited by that environment. I was a singer. I was not a songwriter. The writers gave her material, and she gave voice to that material. So without each other, you know, none of this could have happened. She really wanted me to, to understand that, and I remember saying, write it down. One of my favorite images of the, the Brill Building time is Little Eva, if you go to YouTube and you, you put in Locomotion Little Eva. Shindig is brought to you by the Dairy Farmer members. You see Little Eva standing on a slight pedestal. Behind her are these white guys. They're just dancing behind her. They're like the go-go dancers. How do you think it must have been to be a 15, 16-year-old black girl in 1962 and turn on your TV set after school and see the Shirelles or little Eva? Our story about the Brill Building will be back in just a minute. But first, I wanted to remind you to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And now, back to the story. He's true. He's true. He's true to me. So, girl, you better shut your mouth. From 1961 to 1963, the charts were dominated by Brill Building writers and artists. It seemed like they had found the perfect recipe for efficient pop success. But then... It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard When the British invasion came in, for most of us, we all sort of, all we independent, so to speak, songwriters panicked a bit. 
You know, and here comes the self-contained groups, and here comes the era of the singer-songwriter. And we sat there and said, well, what are we going to do? The entire industry changes, and the focus is no longer the kind of urbane, polished R&B music coming out of New York, but suddenly all of the music that's coming out of Britain. The Beatles were actually pretty big fans of the Brill Building. Please Please Me included a cover of a Goffin King song, Chains. Chains, my baby's got me locked up in chains, and they ain't the kind. Paul McCartney has said, you know, he and Lennon, their model was Jerry Goffin and Carole King. That's who they wanted to be. They wanted to write songs that good. Another 1960s phenom wasn't so enamored with the Brill Building sound. Unlike most of the songs nowadays are being written uptown in Tin Pan Alley, as most of the folk songs come from nowadays, this, this is a song, this wasn't written up there. This is written somewhere down in the United States. Jerry Goffin thought everything that he had written after he heard Dylan was total crap. They were devastated in, in many ways. Carol King and, and Jerry Goffin felt that Dylan had just shown them up. And at one point, they even gathered together some of their demos that they had made and smashed them in despair. It wasn't just that the Beatles and Dylan were good. It was that the way they made music challenged the entire Brill Building model. The Beatles showed how much more money a performer could make by writing their own music. And the whole economic model for rock and roll, songwriting and production began to change. Artists like Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen and others represented a new kind of pop music auteur who was self-contained. And the Brill Building model wasn't the hot model anymore. It has to have been terrifying in a way. The market shifted to where it's almost all written and performed by the same people. As the economics of rock music changed, so did the types of people making and listening to it. When the Beatles came, it really resegregated rock and roll. It became weird to talk about African Americans as even performing rock and roll. It became this real white form. The priorities of the music industry change completely, and it becomes a kind of refocus away from this biracial pop moment to a much more segregated um, way of listening to music. It's a great moment, but it doesn't last long. Don Kirshner sold Alden Music to Columbia Pictures in 1963, in many ways at the peak of its success. Some Brill writers were able to transition well into the new era. Going to the chapel and we're gonna get married. Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry enjoyed their greatest success in the mid-60s, with number one hits like Leader of the Pack and Chapel of Love. Some, like Carole King, were able to catch the singer-songwriter wave. King's 1971 album, Tapestry, won four Grammys and is one of the best-selling albums of all time. But others had a harder time finding their feet without the structure, community, and camaraderie of the Brill Building. I think in some ways, the Brill Building songwriters didn't always realize how great their music was. 
And maybe that's something that Don Kirshner almost made them feel in a way. After all, it was in Kirshner's financial interest to make his writers feel dependent upon him. We never thought the songs we wrote were going to be standards or they're going to be talked about 20 years later, you know? Those songs will be here in 100 years. That's Diane Warren. She's one of the most prolific songwriters alive today and has written number one hits for artists like Celine Dion, Aerosmith, and Brandy. In my world, that's the epitome of, of great pop songwriting. Those were just the best, you know, the best songs and, and songwriters of all time. Warren grew up listening to Brill Building music as a kid in the 1960s, and it helped set her on the path to becoming a songwriter. I feel like even now I almost carry on that tradition. I have a little cubicle I go to every day. I just don't have Don Kirshner outside my door saying, write me a hit, you know? I do that to myself. Today, half of the Brill Building is leased by the startup WeWork. It's a workspace for gig economy freelancers who don't have a company office they can go to. And that's kind of how pop songwriters operate these days, too. Instead of a centralized building, they're in home studios, collaborating online. You don't have to worry about someone banging on the piano in the cubicle next door, but something else might be lost. There was like a camaraderie that I think made you write so prolifically back then, because, I mean, it felt good. Even when things were going wrong, it still felt good, you know? It was a feeling. It was a general feeling. It was terrific. To me, I almost didn't think of it as a publishing company. When I look back at it now, it was like a school. It was a great school for songwriters. Tommy Bazarian produced that story. The Brill Building is still home to some big entertainment industry businesses. Paul Simon's publishing company has offices there. So does Saturday Night Live creator Lauren Michaels' production company, Broadway Video. The recordings you heard of Ellie Greenwich and Barry Mann are courtesy of the Joe Smith Collection at the Library of Congress. Additional archival tape was provided by WNYC Archive Collections. New York icons are made possible by a grant from the Booth Ferris Foundation. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 wherever you get podcasts. <laughs>